Well, good morning, y'all. I'm going to be, uh, begin by reading a passage from uh, the first few verses of the book of Revelation. It says, uh, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. And he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who hears aloud, who reads aloud, the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So today, as Greg said, the time is near to the end of our marathon series, an overview of the Bible. Uh, And as much as he wanted it to be done today, I think I'm going to do one more little gig uh, in the middle of May, and uh, finish it off for real. Um, but we are finishing up, really, in the Bible by coming to the last book of the Bible, which is the most controversial book of the Bible, uh, primarily because it deals with all of the stuff that, quite frankly, scares the bejeebers out of us. Um, I don't know if you ever read it, but there's some scary stuff going on. Literally... Hundreds of books have been written about this one book, and every single one of them has like a different point of view about what it all means. Many religious groups feel like they have figured it out, and so they sold all their earthly possessions. They took their groups up to the top of the mountain and waiting for Jesus' return because they feel like they cracked the code to the secret of the book of Revelation. I've even had people pass through the doors of this church who have pulled me aside and read me very complicated sections of the book of Revelation and say that they've figured it out and Jesus is going to return you know, by the next year and you need to get up and warn the congregation and consider yourself warned. All right? But unfortunately, in the midst of all of the controversy and hidden meanings and complexity, there is this incredible simple message of passion and faith and redemption that gets lost in all the craziness because more than anything else, the book of Revelation, when you boil it all down, is a message of hope as to how one day it's all going to come to an end. And when it does, who wins? So before we get into uh, some of the content, I want to give you a little bit of the context. Um, When the book of Revelation was written, it was about 60 years after the time of Jesus, and so we're going to call it 96 AD-ish. And there's a new sheriff in town. His name is Domitian. He's the new emperor of Rome. And let's just say that he had a bit of a god complex, Uh, because he saw himself as a god, and he would always sign his letters, you know, sincerely, the Lord God Domitian. And on the coins of that day, he had his face stamped on him with the Lord God Domitian. So his ego was so big, in fact, that he made it a law that everyone had to worship him. It was not optional. So as you can imagine, he hated Christians because they worshiped the one true God, and because they refused to worship him, 
he had many, many Christians killed during his rule. So the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation, this is the same guy who was the disciple of Jesus. It's the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he's now getting a little old. And he had become the pastor of the church at Ephesus, where he was living out his final days. But because he refused to stop preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and because he never bowed down to Domitian as a god, he was arrested by the Roman government and sent to an island called Patmos. And there was this small, rocky, volcanic island that I would equate to our Alcatraz that we have out in the San Francisco Bay, similar to that, because this is where the Roman government sent all of their political prisoners And more than likely, John was placed there to serve as an example because he was a leader of the church. And so you have this moment in time when Revelation is being written that Christians are being put to death by Domitian in great numbers. The other apostles were all dead by now. John was the only one left, and he's being held prisoner on Patmos. And so the future of Christianity was looking pretty bleak in this moment. So as John is now well into his 80s, he's sitting there, and all of a sudden he hears this incredibly loud voice that he describes like a trumpet blaring out of the heavens. And little does he know that in this moment, he is about to receive a vision from God. The book of Revelation brings together the worlds of heaven and earth, and hell. And in this final confrontation between the forces of good and evil, its characters and images are at the same time real and yet symbolic. It's both spiritual and yet sometimes scary. But through all of the cryptic symbolism and mystery, one thing comes through loud and clear in this book. And that is if you can overcome whatever it is that you're facing in this life, if you can overcome it with your faith left intact, one day, Jesus says, it will all be so worth it because one day I'm coming back for you. So, uh, you know, taking on the book of Revelation one Sunday morning is a difficult, it's a difficult task. Uh, there are seminary courses dedicated for like a year to the book of Revelation. So I really struggled with how to present the material of um, Revelation. And I, I uh, decided what I was going to do is the, the Revelation is really kind of naturally organized into the four visions that uh, the Apostle John received. So I'm going to kind of just walk us through those four visions that make up the book of Revelation and um, kind of just give a brief overview of the content um, in each of those visions. And I think what's really important to remember is that, you know, John has been given this vision and he's asking to write down and articulate the things that he's seen and heard. And he's seeing and hearing things that are even beyond his own comprehension So I'm not even sure that, you know, there's things that we don't understand and there's mysteries in this. 
I'm not even sure the Apostle John necessarily understood it all um, because it was things that were above his pay grade, you know, things that were going on that um, couldn't quite comprehend that were um, crazy, um, basically, for, you know, some of us to imagine. So I'm going to give us this kind of overly simplistic overview of, of, uh, of Revelation this morning, and I'm going to begin with his first vision, which is chapters 1 through 3. And so I'll just say this about that, and that is that chapters 1 through 3 is pretty normal. And if you don't read anything else in the book of Revelation, really just take on, sit down, read um, Revelation chapter 1. It's very straightforward, very easy to understand. And this is where Jesus appears to John, and he gives him a personal message to deliver to seven churches. Because at this time that the letter was, that this book was written, there were a group of seven churches that were started in the area of Asia Minor. And I think we have a map, right? Um, so as you can see here, you can see Rome up there to the left. You can see Greece there in the middle. And then over here to the right is what was called Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. And there were these seven churches. There was Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea that kind of made this circle. And then if you look in this lower left part where that white box and the red thing is, maybe you can't read it, but that is the island of uh, Patmos where John is writing from. So he's just off the coast of there. So that makes a lot of sense why he's imprisoned there on that um, island. But, uh, you know, Jesus was concerned enough for this group of churches that he felt the need to not only give them some redirection and call them out on some things, but also to provide some inspiration about their faith. And so Revelation was really written as a circular letter, because when an apostle wrote a letter, what the tradition would be that that letter would be read during the church service. So instead of the sermon on this Sunday morning, it would be the book of Revelation would be read, and so it would be read to each and every one of those churches, and it would make their way around to each church. And if you can imagine, if you've never read them, you'll, you'll get it in a minute, but these uh, letters are being read, and each church is hearing the words of Jesus, like, call them out on certain things, and describes the good, the bad, and the ugly of each of the seven churches. So, for example, in chapter 3, verse 14, it says, to the angel of the church of Laodicea, right, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, Jesus said. And you're neither cold nor hot. So you're not on fire for God, and you're not against God, but I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And that's pretty harsh words. Can you imagine if Jesus wrote a letter to the church of Westridge and said something like that? We'd be shaking a little bit, wouldn't we? So you could have probably heard a pin drop as Jesus exposes the dark side and the deficiencies of each church. And so Revelation was not only sent to kind of see where uh, these churches were wrong and needed a course correction, but also to encourage them in their quest for their faith and living in an authentic relationship with God and as a way to inspire them. So in these chapters, I mean, these first three chapters, Jesus is really just trying to tell the churches, hey, you need to pull together here. Right? You're slipping, your faith is teetering, and if you're not careful, you're going to fall away from your faith. I have um, never seen the Christian life as an easy life, and maybe it's because of my own 
uh, natural tendency towards skepticism. And I get criticism from time to time that I do describe uh, the Christian life as a hard life. And while we will never, ever experience the true difficulty of what it really means to be a Christian like they did under the emperor of Rome at the time, Domitian, where Christians were persecuted and killed, even in today's world, when we take on the title of Christian and we really want to live out our faith authentically, it creates another layer of complexity in our lives uh, in an already complicated world and, and trying to figure out how to navigate that. But I would also tell you this, no matter how hard the Christian life is, there is no better life where we can have this sense of mission and purpose. Um, I can't imagine a, a more fulfilling life. And I think that that's what Jesus is getting to the heart of, what he's trying to communicate to these churches. Because at the end of each letter that he addresses to each of the seven churches, he said, to him who overcomes. That's a line that he uses at the end of each letter. To him who overcomes, your name will be written in the book of life. To him who overcomes, you will be with me in paradise. And so he basically lays out the issues and deficiencies of each church, but then he says, he gives him this promise and says, look, if you can overcome it, it's going to change your life forever. So Jesus is basically saying, if you're able to stay the course, if you're able to make it to the finish line of this life with your faith left intact and overcome whatever obstacles that the world throws your way, one day it will all be so worth it. The second vision is uh, found in Revelation 4 through 16. This is the real crazy stuff. All right, So this is where um, I would describe this as God's judgment at the end of the world. This is the most complicated and difficult part of the book of Revelation because these chapters contain a long series of uh, visions with many different twists and turns. And it's in this section, for instance, that we're introduced to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, We're introduced to the dragon and the beast and the seven trumpets and the seven seals and Yes, even the infamous mark of the beast that in Revelation chapter 13 tells us is the number 666, right? Y'all familiar with that? So while there's some very uh, scary images in these chapters, I just want you to know that the bottom line of what this is trying to communicate is that no matter what happens, no matter what hell breaks loose, God is in control. At the end of the day, God wins. You know, and it gives us a very real sense that there is a judgment that is coming. I don't know about you, but um, when I get a picture of Judgment Day in my head, I think of myself as kind of being called to a, a room, and I'd walk into a big, dark room like a movie theater. And as I walk in, you can hear the spotlight Uh, come on, and it hits me in the face. And as I'm kind of doing one of these things, and when I ask, you know, who's behind the light, all of a sudden I hear this big thunderous voice say, Darren Sloniger, this is your life. And you hear the projector come on, and the reels start to spin in this kind of grainy film, because a lot of what happened was in 1984. And, you know, all the stuff that happened behind the bleachers of the football field that you never want to remember, or the stuff that happened on the 21st birthday, or all that stuff. 
you know, that you want to keep hidden, all of a sudden keeps rushing back and you're kind of squirming in your seat because you see all the stuff that you're embarrassed that, you know, your mom's probably sitting there in heaven with you and looking at this and going, really? Um, but, but you kind of, like, get this sense that at the end of the film, there's going to be so much stuff that, you know, you're just waiting for this big, angry God to come and zap you, right? Does anybody have that picture? Or am I just the only one totally me hanging like I'm a crazy person, right? Um, but I find it interesting that in the midst of these chapters, in the midst of the lightning and thunder and plagues and earthquakes and the craziness that's going on, that at the end of the day, sitting on the throne in the judgment seat is not an angry God. It's a lamb. And the imagery of a lamb symbolizes tenderness and compassion. Listen to the words of John in this vision. He says, And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Now, if you're here for Good Friday service, you may remember that the symbolism uh, the, the way that they used to describe Jesus uh, in the crucifixion was a lamb being led to the slaughter. And that's the imagery that they're picking up on here. So each one uh, had a harp and they were holding uh, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. So, you know, here's an example of symbolism that's coming in, right? They're, they're holding golden bowls full of incense. We all go, okay, what are those? Well, he tells you what they are. They're the prayers of God's people. So there's some, a lot of symbolism in the book of Revelation that just becomes very clear. He's seeing it as an image, but this is what it really is. And so they sang a song, a new song, and they were saying, you are worthy to the Lamb. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And then I looked, and I heard a voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. I mean, it's this amazing image that we receive of what's happening there in those final days. But I think that more than anything else, if you cut through this, what it's really trying to remind us is that the same Jesus that we encounter in the Gospels, the same Jesus who lived here on earth that we read about, his tenderness and his compassion, he's not different now that he's on the throne. He's the same Jesus full of tenderness and compassion then as he is now. So whatever idea that you have in your head of what it looks like, there's a really true biblical concept that there will one day be a day of reckoning. That one day when this world ends, that we will all be held accountable for the way that we lived out our days here on this earth. And on that day, there will be no question. It will not be Domitian on the throne. It will not be any president or leader who thinks themselves to be the greatest leader or ruler in the world. The one who will be on the throne on that day will be Jesus. The third vision is chapters 17 
through 20, um, which deals with the second coming of Jesus, the demise of Satan, and it's here we catch a glimpse of hell. So it's in these chapters that we see the image of Jesus transform from the lamb who was slain, the gentleness of the lamb, to a great warrior who is now riding a white horse with a double-edged sword, and he is hell-bent on conquering evil and saving his people as he takes the beast and all that is evil and casts them down into the pits of hell. Now, we really don't know much about hell, but from what we do know, I can tell you one thing. I don't want to go there, right? And some people, I think, as a way to kind of um, deal with the idea of it, romanticize it or make jokes about it. So, for instance, like, you know, one of my favorite uh, cartoons from back in the day are the Far Side cartoons. You remember those? And my favorite one is, you know, two guys are sitting in hell on a bench and they're just kind of looking at all this stuff. And one guy leans over the other one and he goes, I hate this place. And then the same two guys, you know, in another cartoon, one leans over to the other and he goes, it's not the heat, it's the humidity. <laughs> but so I think that, you know, people try to make light of it and, and try to deal with it. But in Revelation 20, it gives us a really sobering picture of hell. Because it says, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And yet another book was opened. And this book was the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in those books. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. That's a bad deal. The Bible makes it very clear that those whose names have not been written in the book of life, in other words, those who made a conscious decision to not follow Jesus in their lifetime, will be thrown into the pits of hell. And make no mistake about it, hell is a very real place, and in the end, None of us want to come anywhere near it. So, before we get all depressed, the good news of the gospel begins to break through and a brighter vision of a new tomorrow comes through in the last vision, which is the fourth and final vision in Revelation chapters 21 and 22, which is the new heaven and the new earth. And so the Apostle John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. But he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. When you begin to um, 
start looking at the idea of heaven. Heaven is really tough, I think, to conceive of. I can't help but um, think about my youngest son, Jacob, who, when he was a very little boy, he grew up here at Westridge, and um, when his grandmother died, I told him that Yahya had died and gone to heaven. Well, Westridge was the only church that he knew at the time, at the time we were meeting at Elgin Community College, so he kind of envisioned what church was like, church equated to like a community college, that that's what it was like. So um, when we pull up in front of the Greek Orthodox Church that her funeral was at, uh, it was an incredibly ornate building with gold trim and stained glass windows. And so I told Jacob that his yaya was in there and we were going to walk in and we were going to tell her goodbye. And he goes, okay. And so he gets out of the car and he looks up and he goes, is this heaven? (laughs) But... Heaven is really, really hard to imagine. And for me, I think the struggle is not so much um, if there is a heaven, but what it's going to be like and if I'm really going to like it there, right? Like, am I going to be bored? You know, some pastors describe heaven as like this eternal worship service, and that couldn't be more uninteresting to me that... (laughs) We're going to sing all 55 verses of when the role is called up yonder or something. And, you know, you guys complain about how much we make you stand during the worship service here at Westridge. Just think about an eternal worship service, how your feet are going to be hurting after then. So don't be complaining no more about that. Um, But when I read the passage, you know, the most important thing that God wants us to understand is that this is the place where God is, right? And it just keeps talking about his presence and how this is the place where God dwells more than anything else and that heaven will be the place where God will be. And if that's the place where God is, then that's the place that I want to be, right? So this next passage, though, I think gives us a glimpse into another idea about what heaven may be like because it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him and there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. The cool thing about this passage is you begin to hear images of Eden in here, right? I mean, you hear about the tree of life and you hear about the river and you hear that there's no longer any curse. And so for me, just in my own head, I imagine that things are going to end as they began, right? If, if, if that it could end end in the way that God intended it to be from the beginning when he breathed his breath into that man and dreamed about the possibilities of being in that garden and living for all of eternity together that now now it can finally be and so now it talks about Eden and in Revelation it seems like it's more of an urban context than an agricultural one which You know, if there's a good coffee shop and a wine bar at the end of the street, I'm good there. Um, 
But as we're getting this final image of heaven, and as the book of Revelation, and indeed as the Bible comes to an end, the final words of Jesus that he keeps saying over and over again, I'm coming back. I'm coming soon. You see, the message of the book of Revelation is this. Life is short. Don't screw it up. Don't waste it on stuff that doesn't matter. And Jesus makes it very clear, we can't crack the code of the book of Revelation because he says, no one knows the time or the dates when I'm going to come back. But you better be ready. Because I am, I am coming soon. As you read the book of Revelation, I would just encourage you in this one way. Don't get stuck in the weeds. Don't get caught in all of the stuff that's all this symbolic and cryptic messaging and all these things and get off on tangents and and get lost there where you lose the point. Raise up your head and really understand that the real focus of the book of Revelation is on the person of Jesus Christ. That he is the real central character of this book and he is the Lamb who was slain. He is the rider on the white horse with the double-edged sword seeking to strike out, save his people from all the evil and the beasts and the nastiness of this world. He is the one who will bring light and eternal life at the end of the day and he is the one who will be sitting there on the throne when we walk from this world and into the next. It's about Jesus. So I just ask that you allow the book of Revelation to be for you what it was for the seven churches where we can shine a light on the deficiencies of our life and look at all the crap that we've done in all the messed up ways but that we can change that we can make a new life that we can have a course correction and that we can be inspired because we know that at the end of the day Jesus wins when we finally understand that this life is just nothing more than a blip on the screen against the rest of eternity. It makes you want to live differently. It makes you want to have every day mean something. It makes you want to live with a sense of purpose and meaning and not feel like when we come to the end that we just wasted all these years on what? On what? so with the book of Revelation, it just forces us to take a look at our life and to ask ourselves this. If tonight when we go home, we were to walk from this world and into the next, and we were to stand before that throne, and we were to look into the eyes of Jesus, what do you know in your heart that you want to cut out of your life that you don't want to be there in that moment? And what does that make you want to fill your life with? If you got a second chance, how would you live differently? Because the truth is, 
This is it. This is the one chance that we have. So live it.